One Art, a fiction podcast with Lisa Moore and Olivia Robinson. Hello! Welcome to One Art, a fiction podcast. My name is Lisa Moore and... And I'm Olivia Robinson. Uh, During this podcast, we will ask local writers to demonstrate different aspects of fiction writing through pieces of flash fiction that they've written uh, specifically to read aloud on this podcast. So today we're going to be talking about point of view. We're joined today by Ryan Klo and Michelle Porter. Thank you guys. Thanks for coming. Thanks for the you invite. It's wonderful to be here. So Ryan Klo uh, is an emerging writer in St. John's with a focus on mystery, horror, and science fiction. He has published in the Newfoundland Quarterly and won awards from the Arts and Letters and Wannell. He graduated with a BA in English and is currently pursuing an MA in English with a specialization in creative writing. Awesome. And Michelle Porter uh, holds a BA in journalism, an MA in folklore, and a PhD in geography. She is the recipient of the 2005 Atlantic Journalism Award for Feature Writing and the recipient of the 2016 NL Arts and Letters Award for Poetry. She has been long listed for um, the CBC Poetry Prize in 2016 and 2017. And weren't you just long listed for the Creative Nonfiction CBC Prize? Yay! Awesome! You go, girl. That was lovely. So we uh, gave Michelle and Ryan the following assignment. You will write a postcard length assignment, approximately 500 words, that explores the power of writing in the second person. You will remember that the only place in the newspaper where the second person is employed is the horoscope section. So use your horoscope for the first week of September as your inspiration for this postcard assignment. You will remember that the second person can create an intense intimacy as it seems the piece you are reading is speaking only to you. You will also remember that the second person can be eerie, voyeuristic, and even controlling. It often appears, particularly in the horoscope, in the future tense. It can tell the reader what to do. It can be bossy or even grating in big doses. You will remember that the second person sometimes dabbles with the supernatural. Most importantly, you will have fun with this assignment. Yeah, and I think we really wanted to look at point of view uh, in this podcast, like really focus on it. Just and, and one of the ways of focusing on all the different kinds of point of views you can have, first, second, third, and every iteration in between, is by taking one of them and mm-hmm. uh, dissecting it, which you guys do a fantastic job of. Yes, and second person is challenging uh, so it's fun to kind of use as a writing exercise as well so. and also this is something you can try at home go grab your own horoscope and see mm-hmm. what happens when you try to bring it to life yes. so let's jump in michelle can you read your horoscope just the first of all the one that uh, inspired the piece you're going to read sure i sure laughed when i got this assignment um and i quickly googled in the horoscope and uh, found some very interesting things and then I thought how am I going to write in the second person based on this so here, here's what I found there's plenty happening in your love life Virgo <laughs> the trouble however is that it might not be the type of action you want in fact you might be in for a major disappointment on September 4th Venus will oppose Neptune across your relationship axis signaling a bubble bursting in love all is not what it seems and you're about to find out that your prince or princess has a few warts Will you be okay with them? Adding to the mix is that on September 14th, Mars will oppose Neptune also across your partnership axis, while there is also a full moon in your relationship sector on this day. It is possible that you're just going to wave the white flag and give up on this relationship entirely. Or you might have to accept that it has simply slipped through your fingers. 
The good news in September has to do with finances. After the 14th, you could see money flow in like crazy thanks to Venus moving into your earned income sector. A new moon in the same area of your chart on September 28th adds to the possibilities. So lots of love, troubles, and some money. (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, what you're going to read is fiction, but do let us know if any of this actually happened to you. (laughs) (laughs) I will, I will. Um, Shall I go into the piece? Yeah, do it. it All right, so yeah, I writing in second person, uh, I mean, uh, writing with that, that point of view was a challenge, pulling out, uh, pulling it from a horoscope. I decided to go a little bit with some historical sto- family stories. So I pulled details from uh, some uh, family stories and, and wove it together in this piece. You will wake early to play because your fingers have healed. The last time it took eight weeks for the bones to knit themselves back together, didn't it? It's been longer than that now. You will walk down the street to the music hall. The music hall will be empty, won't it? It will still smell of the party from the night before, but it will be silent and empty. You will have the key and it will be turned by fingers that still want to make beautiful music, even without me. You haven't been able to buy a new violin yet. You think you will, don't you? You think a few weeks of performing for the evening parties will get you a new one, don't you? You think you have been able to fly away. Will you sense that you are being watched? You won't. You will be too full of your ideas of freedom to notice anything but exercising your fingers again. Here you come. What will you say when you see me? You don't know how much pleasure I will take from your start, your gasp. And finally, the pretty anger that will fill your black eyes. You'll be bold and strong, but it won't be enough. You won't be enough, not this time. The fear will come to your eyes too, but not right away. You will sit down and you will play the instrument that awakens your beauty because I want to see you play one last time. You're ugly when you aren't playing. You will ask me why I love to hate you and I will say that you know. Because you know I love to hate you. It had been so satisfying for us both. You will be wearing your performance dress, even to practice, like you always do. You will look so much like your people, and you will say that this isn't me. It's my grandfather in me, and you will be right. You will say that he has kept me from really loving you all this time, and you will be wrong, because it is my grandfather's hatred of you, of your people, that has kept me tied to you, loving you these years. Once... You thought that blood didn't matter, not really, but you are learning to see how much blood matters. And yet, you won't be ready, will you? You will have left your daughter in bed. When you don't return, she will come looking for you. Here you come. You are sitting down to the piano. You are stretching your fingers. You make me hold my breath as I wait. You will be bold. You will be strong. But it won't be enough. Wow, that is that is such a a powerful, gut wrenching, frightening, and and comprehensive description of domestic violence. Yes, the focus in the horoscope on love troubles, and I've been doing some research on on my grandmother's story, and her sister's story, and talking, uh, pulling out sort of family stories, and my grandmother's sister was an amazing, talented musician, and she was married. And, and she's a ma- played traditional Métis music, and she she married a man who was a descendant of the Canadians, the soldiers who came down to put out the Louis Riel 
rebellion. So she, there was this whole love-hate story between two people who continued these generations of well conflict really within within their marriage and and she would go out and she could make she would make money playing music and he was very jealous and he resented it and um, so this pulls upon how she left the marriage and very soon after uh, was found dead one day and yeah so in the horoscope I went it's written in the future but I pulled from the past very much so um, and on family stories it was I didn't expect any of this when I sat down to write it, but for these last few years, I have been doing a lot of this research and writing involving these old family stories. And so I think it's coming together. Wow, I mean, it's amazing. And it was amazing even before I knew it was based on old family stories. Mm-hmm. It feels like a novel. Is it gonna be a novel? Yes, 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 it's going to be. I am, um, I feel, I feel um, ready to begin the novel that is based, that, that, that's based on generations of focusing on Métis women in my family, but with a focus on actually my grandmother's point of view and, and, and her story, because I feel um, this intergenerational sort of responsibility, both to the future generations, but also to the past generations that weren't able to process the, you know, they call it intergenerational trauma, or they call it, um, you know, she was in a, a residential school. So there was a lot of stuff that in that day and age couldn't be processed that I feel like it's time for, in, in my family and in many families like that, it's time for us to take those stories and process. I guess that's also part of what everybody's calling this reconciliation. It's a very personal thing, but very family thing. But to look at it's time for us to understand and to release these stories. So were these stories written down, the ones you're, you're drawing on, or are you looking at docu- government documents, or are these oral stories? All, all three, actually. So we have, I mean, to, to be, yeah, I'm a member of the Manitoba Métis uh, Federation, Métis Citizen Canada, so we have, because of our family line, we have very, we have books of documentation of, of genealogy, etc. And, and there's so many stories within that. Um, there's oral stories that have been passed down. So I've been um, really digging a lot more with the variety of, actually, the, the different kinds of stories that different people in my story tell, so in my family tell. So this one is really based on talking with my auntie elder out in BC, who lives out in BC right now. And this was her mother. She's very eager to get those stories out because of how much she loved the culture she grew up in. And other of the research is following newspaper stories that were written about the musicians because my grandmother and her sister and great-grandfather were really, really well-known, really uh, some of the best Métis musicians in their time, uh, which is funny because I have no musical ability whatsoever, but I, 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 I find it absolutely fascinating. So reading stories about that, learning about, learning about the, where they traveled to, finding some of the old music some of the first recordings of Métis music ever played. It's, it's, so it's a variety of all that, that kind of research, but a lot of the oral history. Um, what I find interesting about talking to people is that there's conflicting stories. So <laughs> as a writer, as I'm following the stories, it's how do I represent all these different stories and how do I, how do I let the stories that conflict with each other live beside each other as well, as anybody who writes from family history knows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just to ask Ryan and uh, Olivia, how do you think the second person worked in that piece? Well, we're dealing with domestic abuse, and when you, what I thought was extremely powerful was that authoritative sense of telling you 
what emotions you can feel and can't feel. So when you said you are not strong enough, limiting someone's emotions as to how they can even act, it's kind of like when you feel caged in and that your your own power is in your meant to be in your actions, but when you feel like you can't even act, your emotions are kind of the only way you can rebel if you can't fight back. And so when you're told you can't even do that, like it's it's extremely limiting and it's scary and i found that the the angle that you took the piece it just it made me feel claustrophobic in the sense that i couldn't even i felt scared reacting to the piece itself do you know what i mean because the second person kind of puts you in a place where you feel like you're being talked to in the same way that the character in the piece is being talked to yeah definitely it makes i feel like the second person yeah, it makes it an even more like intimate reading and really pulls you in to the piece in like an uncomfortable way. And I'm interested when you're like when you're writing the novel, have you started writing the I've been piecing together a little yeah. little a, a few little bits. Yeah. Have I used are you going to ask have I used the Yes, second the second person? person. <laughs> Not yet. I have used it here or there in a couple of pieces I've written because one of the lovely things it does, and I think that's why, as, as, as Ryan said, he felt a bit claustrophobic, is that mm-hmm. you're, you're talking, of course, in this, you're talking almost directly to the reader, so they're feeling it themselves, and it creates a slight bit of confusion in, I think, in the mind of a reader, in, in some people, in a sense that, is this me they're talking to? No, it's not. So it, it, it's a bit of this pushback as you're reading, I think, which mm-hmm. in, a, in, in a piece of tension is interesting but uh, yeah I will I, w- I will play with it yeah it's interesting especially since you're working from like the oral stories and also like document yeah because the way people tell stories would be written or different than reading like a document so it'd be neat to kind of yeah the different points of view well I think that the second person is also very voyeuristic it's someone is watching someone and describing what they will do or will feel or and this is a performer. The, the main character is a performer who, is, who makes a living from being watched. But in the story, of course, we have the sense that the antagonist is watching from a distance and really is a voyeur and, and is, you know, waiting mm-hmm. for her. So there, is, there can be something like a duality in the voice because it can be both intimate and alienating and I think that you really captured that and interesting too with that you know the description that you have of love and hate there loving to hate um really strong strong piece Michelle thank Thank you you. Ryan do you do you want to you're gonna start give us yours man all right (laughs) and uh, you can start give us your uh the horoscope yeah so I'll get the horoscope first so my horoscope was from the star and it reads You do not need to make excuses for being as frivolous as you might want to be. Just go off and be you. Notice how many people seek you out. With as many invitations as you have, choose the ones you like the most. Tonight, let the good times roll with one special person. Fun. (laughs) Right? Uh, Yeah, I kind of took that inspiration. And so you'll see I wrote uh, two, like, half short stories, like, half stories that... uh, deal with the same events and what I tried to do was actively take the horoscope and attempt to present someone finding 
or believing that they know who their special someone is. And then we'll see in the second story that I kind of took it in a much darker route to take advantage of the second person to see where that goes. Okay, so in the first one, you were invited to a shindig at her place on Alice Drive. There was a small group of you from the office. She decided to host the party, but didn't elaborate on why any further than why not. But you know why. She's a caring soul, a generous person who would sooner take the shirt off her back and offer it to someone in need than leave anyone stranded. So when the boss asked if anyone could host the party, she jumped at the opportunity. And you know you admire her for that generosity. She stands in the corner nursing a drink. Everyone is wearing something casual, and she has on a simple black blouse and blue jeans. Her hair is expertly braided and falls down her neck in just the right way. There's a simplicity to her appearance and a kindness to her expression that just draws people to her, and you're one of them. You're not particularly forward when it comes to making the first move. You feel as though you're out of her league, and a few of your friends have told you the same thing. But you can't help feeling drawn to her. Your goal is to not freak her out, so you stay on the opposite side of the room and sip on a rum and coke, careful to only send passing glances her way so she doesn't think you're some sort of creep. You're hoping the liquid courage will help you out a bit. A few hours pass and the party winds down. She's thanking guests as they leave, offering a few a room to stay in if they need it, but no one takes the offer. You're debating whether to leave before it's just the two of you, but the choice is made for you when your bladder sends you running to the bathroom. By the time you're done and all zipped up, everyone's gone and she's picking up discarded pizza boxes. Oh, hey, I thought everyone left, she says. Oh, uh, I was just in the bathroom, you reply. She stares back at you, unsure of what to say. You want to ask her about The Office because you know it's her favorite show. Or maybe her thoughts on pizza because pineapple on pizza is sacrilege. Or maybe ask her if she's free tomorrow night. I'll call a cab, you say. You pull out your phone, but feel weird being alone in the room with her while she's packing up. I'll just head out to the porch, you say, pointing towards the front door. Okay, have a good night, she says, hair dancing, as she diligently stacks red cups. You step out onto the porch, sit down on the front stoop, and wait for your ride, wondering what you should have said instead. Aww. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. You got the second half there? Yeah, I got the second half. So to kind of counter the first half, she invited you to her house on Alice Drive. There were other people than just you, a few co-workers, mostly people you've never said more than hello to. But you know why she decided to host this party. She's lonely. You see it in her deep blue eyes, scanning the room for someone to talk to, but finding no one. And when Craig from accounting walks up to her to thank her, she knows Craig, the guy that all the girls talk about. You know she's just being polite. He probably does this routine to all the girls, and you hope she's smart enough to see through his facade. But just in case she isn't, by the end of the night, you'll be sure to let her know. Her blonde hair, by the way, is immaculate, mesmerizing in the way the braids splay down her back. It always looks so soft, you know. You'd love to touch it, caress it, feel the long, thick hairs between your fingers. You bet it feels like silk, and you're sure it smells of coconut or something else tropical. She fiddles with her iPhone, and Don't Speak by No Doubt plays over the speakers. It's a little too 90s for your liking. If the music were a few decades earlier, then you'd be talking. Millennials have pretty poor taste, and her choice in song makes you a little disappointed in her, but everyone has their flaws. 
You're also not a huge fan of her jeans. A flowing skirt will look more graceful, and it would accentuate her legs a bit more. It's a shame that we now treat showing a little skin like it's a horrible thing. Women should be proud showing off a well-toned body, and she should too. You're sorry that society has pigeonholed her into keeping everything to herself. Unfortunately, you have to work early tomorrow morning. You make sure to wait around until Craig from accounting is gone, though, because who knows what would happen if the two of them were left alone. You just want to make sure she's safe. One of her friends ushers you out the door, even though there's still some guy in the bathroom. You try to warn her, but her friend isn't having it. And then you notice her friend could stand to lose a few pounds if she wanted someone to care for her the way that you cared for her. As you leave, you take a final look at her, backlit by a tall lamp, making her look positively glowing, and you are impressed that she swapped her drink for a glass of water. It's good to know one's limits. Women need to be more careful in today's society. Oh my gosh, this poor woman! <laughs> Why did she invite all these people over? <laughs> this office party. Oh my goodness. That's is that is that what's going on? <laughs> I know, that's scary. There's kind of been like a theme across all of our podcast episodes. Like a lot of the pieces have taken place in like offices or cars or like these kind of in-between places where like or parties, office parties, where, like, anything could happen with all these people who are just kind of, the only thing they really have in common is that they work at the same office, which is kind of interesting. (laughs) Leads to tension, for sure. Did you find it challenging to write that in the second person, or...? Surprisingly, no. Um, I think it was because as soon as I read the horoscope, um, and I thought, special person, I... I have a few friends that I've talked to about kind of dating apps and stuff and how like for some of them things aren't working out or they can't find the right person or like people are trying to find someone that's perfect that hopes they will reciprocate in the same way and everything will just be magical kind of without any with little effort put into it. And so when I thought about this, I was like, okay, well, what if I take someone who is holding out hope or has a crush on someone and they're just they don't believe in themselves they have a lack of confidence and so i just drew from real life friends and put that into the first piece and then as i was writing the first piece you know my mind goes okay well what if this person is a predator like you know we we on the heels of the me too me too movement i considered how women can feel when when they're they don't feel safe when someone approaches them Right. And so that's kind of what I wanted to play with, because I mean, I, I'm as a man, like I, I can't I know that I can't feel that same way. And so kind of as a writer, you can tap into places where, you know, you can't go or in real life. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to play with what if I take that voyeuristic aspect and try to get into the mindset of someone who could even possibly think those things of someone that are those horrible things and like it's not a good place to go but as an author you're kind of like this is uncharted territory so your mind plays with with the concept that you've you know you've given us for today what i loved about it many things but what i love about it is that it, the it's microaggression it's so small and and especially the second guy you know the tension is as we're listening how how much danger is she in really and how 
how aware are these narrators of of the sexism that is you know completely apparent to the listener so there's this dramatic irony that these people are just expressing their honest thoughts and feelings but the listener recognizes whoa this is like is this what happens when i go to a party (laughs) like you know (laughs) is this what people are thinking and just the uh, it's just, it's so small, this notion that, you know, really she should be wearing a dress. Like, it's a, it's a very kind of small, deep example of sexism. But, and it's it's not even spoken, it's thought, right? Yeah. But, um, but it just stands in for all kinds of controlling practices that are available in the office. Like, this is an office party that goes you know, enters the domestic sphere, which is a more personal, you know, attempts to be more personal. That's the other thing I love about it is that it's such a great setting. The office comes home, yeah. like a uber nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then the fact that the, like the TV show, The Office is her favorite TV <laughs> yeah. show just is excellent little detail too. I guess both of you, Michelle and um, Ryan, do you think there is any like, limitations to the second person writing in the second person definitely yes Mm -hmm. yeah it can be a struggle because almost you has to be in almost every sentence you have to uh you're giving directions a little bit it's a struggle to keep it either intimate or to keep tension going um uh, uh, and and to keep the story keep the story going keep keep the reader engaged because after a bit, um, I mean, I like what was very successful about your two pieces is, is there is that bit of tension of the reader being invited in to thinking these thoughts, but then pulling back and going, wait, I wouldn't think that, oh, but would I, but I am. So it creates this beautiful confusion in a whole novel. I'm not sure that a reader would want to go that far, although, you know, it, it, it has been, it's, it's difficult and it's difficult to pull off well. Yes, definitely. I'm not sure... If I can even think of a novel that's written. Well, Bright Lights, Big City by Jay McInerney is is great. And, you know, the <laughs> characters are, it's all in the second person. And, and I think all of it is. And the characters are despicable, basically. They're, you know, cocaine-addled, rich New Yorkers, I think. And uh, you really don't like them. Is that a thing with second person? It's successful if you're bringing, if, it's, if the characters are awful. It would it be boring if you were, yeah, if you were invited into a very nice person's world? Well, Olivia has a oh yeah, the Lori Moore. Uh, yeah, so there's a great um, Lori Moore short story called "How to Become a Writer," which is all in the second person, and I think the main character in it is like a high school student. And yes, I'll just read a little bit. First, try to be something, anything else. A movie star slash astronaut. A movie star slash missionary. A movie star slash kindergarten teacher. President of the world. Fail miserably. It is best if you fail at an early age, say 14. Early critical disillusionment is necessary so that at 15 you can write long haiku sequences about thwarted desire. It is a pond, a cherry blossom, a wind brushing against sparrow wing leaving for mountain. Count the syllables. Show it to your mom. She is tough and practical. She has a son in Vietnam and a husband who may be having an affair. She believes in wearing brown because it hides spots. She'll look briefly at your writing, then back up at you with a face blank as a donut. She'll say, how about emptying the dishwasher? 
Look away. Shove the forks in the fork drawer. Accidentally break one of the freebie gas station glasses. This is the required pain and suffering. This is only for starters. So, you know, Lori Moore is just hilarious. (laughs) She's so good. (laughs) And the voice is very, you know, is not at all antagonistic or evil in in that story. But it's kind of like almost directive, but like in a humorous way. Yeah, and we and it, it tells you how to be a writer, but what how to get at truths that matter really is the whole story. Um, yeah. And what she circles back to over and over is her brother in Vietnam, but just mm-hmm. in the very most subtle ways, so that by the time you get to the end of the piece, you've been laughing a lot, but you get kind of smacked with the truth of what it means to come close to the things that make us want to write, that terrify us, that tear us apart, that you know provide that knife edge of joy and sadness really i want to read the rest of that and there is a yeah yeah, there is that joy but also yeah the little subtle bits of her life that are coming through that she's telling almost on the side it's just that was very effective yeah thank you (laughs) also there's also i think in the most recent edition of the fiddlehead eden robinson also wrote um it's like a little almost flash fiction along similar lines like how to be a writer and it's also in the second person it was really excellent I wish I'd brought that one too I wanted to say um about your piece Ryan I love I love the ending where this young woman is picking up the pizza boxes and the and the red cups Mm -hmm. and she does not give in to the pressure of maybe saying oh no you can wait inside for your cab or no why don't we just go into the bedroom here because it's obvious that you've lingered and isn't that my job kind of thing you know like she she without any kind of submission or or even rudeness she deftly gets him out of the apartment (laughs) I think she owes him nothing and she knows it. And, you know, regardless of whether she's as caring as he seems to think or she's got a spine that comes out in in the way she's tidying up rather briskly and demanding he leave, basically. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was yeah. very funny in that dynamic where she's tidying up that this guy isn't thinking, I like this person, I should help her. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's thinking, he's, yes. not, he's not lending a hand. No. <laughs> he's not thinking, okay, let's... He's thinking entirely of his desires yeah. and, and struggling yeah. with that as opposed to her as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. One thing I tried to do there was in the, the first guy um, never tries to impart action upon her as in what she, she should do. Right. Uh, it does avoid him being someone who doesn't <laughs> seem particularly helpful. But then the second guy imparts action on what she should do do based on what he Mm. thinks she should do so i try to keep that and i think that even that in itself regardless of the two guys personalities lended itself to making the first half slightly like lighter than how menacing the second one sounds because when you impart that action upon another party Mm -hmm. it immediately makes you uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. when you were talking just then about um like can you have this kind of positive character or a a nice character in the second person and I had wondered if the only way you can do that is kind of in the example Olivia showed which is where you have kind of you take a a humorous tone Mm -hmm. in your writing or whimsy or some way that because once you get into a character that begins to judge others rather than impart wisdom on the reader the, the reader can feel like 
they're being judged every time it says you right mm-hmm. let me ask all three of you what about the fir- first person and the third person like what uh, i mean because obviously those are the points of view that we m- most often read and most often write in i think what do they have to offer that that you don't get with the second person or or even you know what does the first person offer that the third person doesn't well i think one way we can get a clear example of this is that um in my story for example we never understand uh, the host, hostess's point of view, the object of affection. And you will only get that point of view if the author writes that point of view. So in the third person, we can move in and out between people's point of views and their own internal thoughts and how they view others. But the first person allows us this kind of non-judgmental on the reader non-judgment on the reader that they can begin to judge others and then we judge their character not as if we are a voyeur but as if they are their own individual that makes sense (laughs) Mm, it does yeah yeah there's there's so much complexity of story and movement you can build into first and 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 third and of course with the third you can build in layers of what other people may be thinking about things or of judgment as the word you use second person i feel like you get on a train you're going to one destination and you got to make the best of it and you know some of these examples are making the absolute best of it but but that's also its tension you're just driving ahead driving forward in one direction first and third you can go wherever (laughs) yeah true i feel like maybe um in second person it's uh like a little bit about the tone what you were saying ryan how you can kind of direct how it's read based on the tone which you can also definitely do in first and third person and maybe even more so and you can with third person you can have a kind of split between the narrative voice and what the characters are doing so the narrative voice for instance you know the narrative voice can have a, a very different vocabulary and diction and elevation perhaps that the uh, characters might not have and that Mm -hmm. produces a kind of dramatic irony so if you've got a character like often with Martin Amos's writing for instance you'll see a narrator who's obviously very educated savvy you know but he's writing about the you know to use an awful phrase criminal element but you know he's he's sending them up and making them buffoons and and showing their stupidity but the narrator is like at such a different height than these people that there's this divide there's a layering of voices throughout i was also thinking of uh uh andy weir's the egg as a short story um the guy who wrote the martian and it's kind of commanding presence is just it's it's something that i think first and third person just can't they can't reach that level of authority right it's it's kind of i don't know how to describe it best but maybe like an astral projected version of the reader Mm. judging themselves because when you read a second person you were doing this you were doing this you you subconsciously place yourself in the shoes of the protagonist or antagonist in some cases if they're particularly menacing but in the first and the third person you 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 don't actively do that or subconsciously do that 
Like, you can rove between characters. Yeah, if you're reading a nonfiction, the the author is separate from you. If you're reading a fiction, the characters are separate from you. But in any second person, you it you have to act like consciously separate yourself in order to make that work. That yeah. buffer is gone. That, yeah. that you that, that allows you to relax into a story. So I think second person is much less relaxing to read. Yes, for yes. Sure. <laughs> sure. And in your piece, Michelle, you know, there's a, a driving rhythm where mm-hmm. with the question, don't you, don't you, aren't you? Yeah. And I think that it propels the, the it, it, it's so pushing the reader through the piece in a, in a really good way, creates suspense and tension. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we've done the second <laughs> person. <laughs> I think we high five the second person. Yes. <laughs> We've cracked the code of the second person. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast today. And uh, we're going to take a moment here to mention some other great podcasts. Flahulik with uh, Mary Dalton, um, The Academic and the Activist with Amanda Bittner and Jenny Wright. Um, and Riddle Fence is also running uh, a podcast. And um, Lisa's own State of the Arts podcast is an excellent listen. And and Michelle, you can mention your husband's podcast. Yes. Oh, well, um, he's my husband's working on rural roads, rural issues. And maybe uh, even today. his name. Uh, <laughs> oh, of course, he has a name, Boy and Fierce. And, and uh, we've been working on the 7070 series together, 70 Profiles of Newfoundlanders. Wow. 70 wow. years since the Confederation. So. Okay, how many episodes do you have? Um, it's it's audio and visual, of course. We oh dear, we have about fifteen of them and a few more in the works, and uh, plans for plans for a lot more. So, um, I'll send out a link if you're curious to see it. I would, yes, yeah, awesome. yeah. very good. Uh, so we're going to take a little break here, and then we'll be back with our final segment, um, the fave fiction of people with wild jobs report. So stay tuned. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you guys. Thank fun. you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. You're listening to One Art, a fiction podcast with Lisa Moore and Olivia Robinson. Hello? 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 Hi. Hello? Hi. Yay! So uh, I'm here talking with Michael Foley for our final segment, uh, The Fave Fiction of People with Wild Jobs Report. And uh, Michael Foley is a karate instructor here in St. John's. So thanks, Michael, for agreeing to do this. Oh, no trouble. Awesome. So can you tell me a little bit um, about what you do? Uh, well, I'm a full-time martial arts instructor in the city of St. John's. And uh, uh, I grew up doing it. It's a second-generation job for me. So my father opened the club in 1978. And, uh, yeah, I grew up basically... Uh, in the martial arts industry, so it was a, uh, you know, like any family that grew up in the in hockey or uh, or the fishing industry, it's just what we did on a daily basis. Yeah, wow. So, how did your um, father get involved with that? Do you know? Um, he took an interest in it when he was a teenager, and then when he got to university, when he went to Munn, um, he uh, uh, took a class. Um, at the, uh, I think it was in the old dance hall that was in the bottom of the phys ed building. It was a ballet studio, uh, as far as I, as far as I know. But he took the uh, uh, a pro- 
program there one semester and that was it he uh, uh, hitchhiked to Montreal and uh, uh, he stayed there until uh, he was given a, a belt rank high enough that he could come home and open up up the school awesome so where is the school located uh, mine or my father's uh, both <laughs> uh, my father opened up in Spaniards Bay in 1978 and it's my hometown and uh, from there he kind of branched out and he had schools all over the Avalon Peninsula. Uh, one as far away as Bonavista that he made a weekly trek to. Wow. <laughs> and uh, when I moved to St. John's for university, I was uh, doing a lot of uh, international traveling and competing. And um, from there, kind of, because it was so close to the university and there was no club there, it was kind of like, you know, uh, kind of got the push uh, from the rear to uh, open a club Awesome. So, uh, where did you travel um, while you were competing? Uh, as a competitor, uh, I've been. To, I've got five continents covered. So I've got the the two remaining ones that I haven't been to yet are Australia and Antarctica. But wow. I can't find uh, an event <laughs> in Antarctica to go to. So <laughs> I think uh, uh, Australia will be the last one on my list. But we've been uh, uh, to Brazil, uh, Africa. Um, a few different countries in um, in Europe. Uh, we've been to Southeast Asia. We spent a couple of uh, a couple of months there in uh, 2007. So yeah, we've uh, we've traveled ex- extensively with the sport. Well, maybe you'll have to start one in Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> now I do, I do hear that there is a marathon there. Okay. But uh, and I've met some people that have uh, taken part in it, but. Uh, yeah, I'm not really interested. <laughs> no, <laughs> so. oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, that sounds difficult. Um, so could you uh, tell me a little bit um, about a book that's um, meaningful to you? Um, well, yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, and the one that comes to mind is uh, um, uh, Selected Works of Poetry by D.H. Lawrence. So when I was uh, traveling around competing as a teenager and uh, in my early 20s, um, my father got into the habit of uh, uh, writing out uh, a little verse from uh, from a book for motivation or uh, uh, a little poem, and he put uh, he put um, uh, self pity by D. H. Lawrence in a on a little scrap of paper, and he stuffed it in my wallet before I went uh, away to uh, nationals. I think in 1999, and uh, I didn't know it was there until. We got up there, and I pulled it out of my uh, wallet, and I, I kind of read it, but um, uh, it kind of like uh, gave me a little bit of a, uh, a sense of grounding before I went out and competed. But um, in, I was kind of in a room full of uh, combative sports athletes, and uh, everybody kind of had the same look on their face, like furrowed brows and headphones on, listening to heavy metal music, and. I'm the kid sitting over on a chair uh, reading poetry, so it uh, I kind of stood out like a bit of a sore thumb. But from there, um, I found that it had the, the effect on me that it was a um, a calming uh, sense before I was getting ready to compete. So uh, from there, I was taking books with me no matter where we went. So uh, like um, when we went to South Africa to compete, I had uh, uh, James Joyce and Brendan Behan with me, and when uh, we were in Southeast Asia. I took uh, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, so it, it became a thing after that. That uh, just to 
D.H. Lawrence. Yeah, wow, I love that. It's, it's like a good balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. It's, uh, uh, but nobody else was doing it either. Everybody else is kind of, well, you can imagine the stereotypical scene at a combat sports event. Yes. Everybody's got a, a shaved head, goatee, excess amount of tattoos, and a lot of heavy metal music, and I didn't fit the, the mold, so yes. it... Uh, yeah, that was, I guess, my thing from that point on. Mm, that can be a good thing, though, to not fit the mold, for sure. Yeah. So is martial arts popular in St. John's? Uh, it's very popular, and we do um, uh, we do a lot of local events with other clubs, and it's, uh, there's, for population density, I've been all over. It's uh, uh, St. John's in particular, Newfoundland in general, but St. John's in particular has always been well-represented in, in all fields of martial arts, so it's... Um, it's a, it's a booming industry here, but it's kind of under the radar because it's not, I guess, what you call mainstream, like other sports like hockey or basketball. So it's uh, we kind of fly under the radar a little bit. Yeah, that can also be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Okay, no trouble. Awesome. Thanks. Chat soon. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. been listening to one art a fiction podcast with lisa moore and olivia robinson